from day one of this sale process that started last year, we thought we'll probably be acquired by a financial buyer. Not because I didn't think that we could be acquired by a strategic, but because during the process of running FOMO, we were approached by several very large public companies that all of us know about, household names, their corp development teams, right? And you get the emails and they say they're interested in a partnership or potential acquisition. And you go through all the hoops with them and you give them all your data and then just crickets, just nothing happens. So I thought, you know what, even if we could be acquired by that strategic type of company, that's just gonna let us throw out a big number and not use a multiple of revenue, it's gonna be a very long and painful process. It's gonna be very political. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Ryan Culp. Now, usually when John interviews guests, you know, they're in their office or they're in their home, but this week, Ryan joined us from his new 50-acre ranch, which he bought as a trophy for selling his company, FOMO. But before we get there, in this episode, Ryan mentions a blog post that was written, which completely outlines in detail the sale of his company. And to make it super simple for you all, as it is a bit tricky to find, I have found it and linked that article over in the show notes section, which can be found at builttosell.com along with everything referenced in today's episode between John and Ryan. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit about today's guest, Ryan Culp, who started a SaaS business, which helped companies show recent customer sales and engagements through notifications on their website. Now I'll let Ryan tell it in more detail in today's episode, but he built this company up to over 1 million in annual recurring revenue before selling it to Relay Commerce this past year in an absolutely lucrative exit. Here to share the full story with John today is Ryan Culp. Enjoy. Ryan Culp, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks for having me, John. So describe FOMO for people who haven't seen the product. Describe what it does. FOMO is a social proof marketing tool. Social proof, of course, is just a concept, a, an aspect of marketing where your customers sell for you. And all of us use social proof. We have reviews on our Yelp page. We get referrals, that kind of thing. What FOMO tries to do is automate or productize that social proof. And the way we do that is by showing recent customer sales, checkouts, engagements, whatever, on your website through these little notifications. So if you've ever been on like an online store and it says, Five minutes ago, Sarah bought this built to sell book by John. Um, you're going to see a product like FOMO, if not our product. You know how this worked for me and, and where I find this incredibly valuable is on small independent boutique e-commerce websites where they don't have the credibility of an Amazon. Because when I look, That's when right. I buy something on Amazon, I'm probably buying a brand. I'm probably buying something I trust. First of all, I trust Amazon that if they screw it up, you know, they'll return it. But if I'm yep. on like Jane's, you know, jam <laughs> company, yes. and I'm like, is this company legit? Does anybody actually buy Jane's jam? And all yes. of a sudden these little... Um, little notifications come up and say like Bob and Punxsutawney just bought three pack of Jane's jam. And then like Cindy in, in Vancouver bought the 12 pack. I'm like, Oh, people actually buy this stuff. Yes. And 
for me, when I first saw it, I'm like, this is brilliant because it <laughs> makes it real, especially these websites where they just kind of look hokey and not necessarily mm -hmm. trusted mm -hmm. yet because I'd never heard of them. Like, am I kind of getting the idea that you had, right? What part am I getting wrong? That's right. You're nailing it. There's really a few things. So first, what you mentioned, you know, this website, I don't know if people, I don't know if this is a real thing, right? So it's like, what happens when I push this button? What happens after my money gets debited from my card? Does anything happen? Is this thing on? That's really sort of, I think, one of the premises we had with FOMO. Is this thing on when you go to a website that, as you said, is small boutique? Another thing happening, which you also just sort of touched on, is just the design and aesthetic itself. If I'm a mom and pop website selling healthy peanut butter, and I have bought from those types of sites before, the product is fantastic, right? The peanut butter tastes incredible. That does not necessarily lend itself towards their web design chops, right? And I don't expect someone who's really good at making peanut butter to know how to make a 2022 modern, brilliant website design. And they don't know what flat UI even means. So I think part of what FOMO is also doing is saying, let's, um, let's not require you to be sort of judged on all these other attributes of your business that have nothing to do with what the customer really came here for, which is the delivery of that product or that service. And then I think a third component that FOMO really helps with, or products like FOMO and Social Proof helps with, is that when you look at the the metrics of like, I get a 100 sales or 100 users of my app, how many of them actually leave a review, right? Like maybe 1%, maybe 5%. And this is something all of us are trying to figure out. I have 300 patrons a day at my sandwich shop, but one of them leaves a review per week on Yelp. It's sort of wild. And so what FOMO is trying to do is sort of in a permissionless way, um, allow you to leverage that you have happy customers without necessarily requiring all those customers to work for you for free. Because that's always something that's fundamentally bothered me about the review process is like, you just paid me for the product. I gave you the product. So really transactions done. But now I'm actually asking you to become my salesman and work for me for free when I ask you to leave a review. So reviews are great. We have lots of reviews, but we also try to acknowledge that it's not the easiest thing to curate those reviews um, and to, I don't want to say convince, but you know, encourage people to want to leave you a review. So things like FOMO allow you to show stuff's happening. We have customers, you know, maybe this is a busy store. People trust us. And that's really what it's all about. We want to expose the trust that you've instilled, even if, and even when not all of your customers are going to publicly express that trust. And with FOMO, it's not just people who buy from you. It's, you've got integrations with I sound like a commercial for FOMO. <laughs> You've got integrations with dozens of, you know, great platforms, but the, you know, um, you've got, I think you've got a Twitter integration. So if somebody like follows Jane's jam on Twitter or somebody opts into the newsletter, you've got an integration with all the, you know, the MailChimps of the world so that it, it really makes Jane's jam. Even if people aren't buying the jam every five seconds, it makes right. it look dynamic because people are probably interacting with her website on some level, whether they're opting in, they're buying something, they're leaving it, you know, whatever. So it, it really brings a website and makes it look dynamic. Did you guys have competitors? Was this a novel idea at the time or did, were other people doing it? Sure. So uh, I guess uh, one moment, one sort of thing to touch on to back up is that FOMO, I started FOMO, uh, we came up with the branding. We built the app from scratch. However, FOMO started as an acquisition itself. So we bought an app called Notify, 
which was doing these notifications just for sales and just on Shopify. So we acquired Notify and then very quickly over the next few months with customer development, with our own opinions, you know, as builders, we said, let's expand this. Let's make it available on more than just Shopify. Let's allow people to put it on any website and let's also connect with more than just sales. But what at did that you pay time, for Notify? Uh, I think we're under NDA on the exact amount, but we probably paid, let's say it took us a couple years to pay off, uh, 20 months. I think it took us exactly 20 months to pay off. Uh, so it was a pretty low multiple. And uh, we also did it with seller side financing, which might be more interesting than the exact amount. Um, so we were actually able to pay off Notify using the monthly revenue coming in from Notify. So and no that was of your own. Basically, income. no cash. I think my only cash up front was like on LegalZoom.com at the time to make, a, you know, to make an entity, you know, put a thousand bucks in the Chase business account, get the Chase, you know, check credit card. Yeah. Yeah. So the, Why the ultimate that like, deal, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I can't disparage a amazing partner of mine. Uh, amazing deal. I guess I could, I would be uh, open to seller side financing as well. If depending on my situation, if I was in distress, if I just didn't have time, if I was really excited about the new people to take over and, you know, also another thing we did with that former owner of Notify was they retained some equity. So uh, we did two things. They retained equity. So they actually exited twice because we sold FOMO, right? Recently, they exited maybe three times. They exited once to us. They exited again when we did a secondary sale several months back. They just wanted to take some off the table. And then they exited a third time uh, when we sold to a, to a PE fund a few months ago. So uh, that was one thing we did. The second thing we did with them was we set up a very strict uh, clawback such that if we failed to make a payment like twice in a row, so we're talking 60 days overdue, uh, really 30 days overdue of one monthly payment, they got the whole company back. Wow. And so I think those are sort of some of the mechanisms you can put in place and seller side financing suddenly isn't bad for you, the buyer, because you don't have to have all that cash. And it's not too risky uh, as the seller. You know, if they do well, you got equity. If they don't, you get the whole company back, plus you keep all those monthly payments. Great. That's super helpful and, and makes sense as to as to why that deal got that done. So you had Notify. It was an existing product just for Shopify customers. And you're like, this thing could work for anyone, uh, any boutique site up there. And you rebranded to FOMO. What was the, like when I think of FOMO, I think of fear of missing out. I'm assuming mm -hmm. that was the intent behind the product name that, but go further as to the product name. So that's a funny uh, yeah, observation. Of course, we are hinting at FOMO, fear of missing out, but we've taken special care over the last six, seven years to never use the word fear in our copywriting, our marketing, uh, because we don't want to instill fear. Uh, that's not our game. I just thought FOMO, when we were coming up with the branding, uh, perfectly encapsulates. It's sort of like almost a synonym for marketing, right? Because all marketers are kind of trying to create FOMO, whether they explicitly talk about that or not. Um, and so some of those principles that, you know, what's his face, Robert Cialdini talks about, uh, persuasion and those kinds of things are all, I think, encapsulated in the word FOMO. But we set up our vision and our mission very early on. And that was never about, you know, creating fear. So it's sort of almost an Easter egg, I guess, in our branding. Um, and like you said, it's wisdom of the crowd, we'd say, more so than fear of missing out. So Black Friday 
is the is the dark side of FOMO, right? You stampede someone in the Walmart to save a hundred bucks on a TV. Um, and what we're trying to do is sort of what you articulated at the beginning, which is encourage, empower consumers to support smaller businesses that uh, ostensibly don't have as much credibility, but by the quality of their products should. And that's why our vision at FOMO since the beginning has been to give honest entrepreneurs the credibility they deserve. That's been our vision. And so to us, fear isn't part of the equation, but again, it's kind of an, a chef's kiss or Easter egg to name ourselves FOMO. So how did you market FOMO? Like, how did you get trial users and convert them into paid? When we started with FOMO, we didn't really know. Well, the first thing was we didn't know who our customer should be. The Notify app, of course, was Shopify only. And Shopify has a marketplace. And I think the iPhone app store, Google Play, aren't necessarily good analogs to Shopify because if I have an app in the iPhone store, I'm still driving, I'm still responsible for driving traffic, right? And there are maybe a million apps in the app store. But Shopify is, and especially was back then, a bit different. Shopify has like a couple thousand apps, right? This is 2016. So it's sort of this concept of, if you stand near a waterfall, you're bound to get wet. By Hmm. simply being in the public Shopify listings, having that approved status, right? There is an approval process you are going to get hits because what people like to do is they sort by price. Show me sort by price, free to paid. Show me top recommended, sort by review count, sort by new, sort by this category. And if there's 50 categories in 2000 apps, right? You could do the math. There's only like 40 apps per category. If they show 20 apps on a page, it's sort of like you're on page two of Google the day you launch your product. So that was the opportunity and this is the first time I've actually articulated it because um, that's sort of the secret that a lot of us 2000 developers have been keeping to themselves on Shopify is you are on page two of Google the day your app goes live on the Shopify marketplace. So we were able to, through the Shopify portal, get insane conversions without driving traffic ourselves. And I started measuring that. You could add analytics to Shopify. We were getting literally, and we still are today, 20, 30, 40% signups from visitors. So 10 people go to our listing a day, four of them sign up, uh, which is wild, right? You have to drive a hundred visitors to your homepage to get maybe three signups. Um, so that was how we did Shopify. But then we wanted to figure out how can we attract other types of businesses because this social proof thing isn't uh, e-commerce specific. If I teach a course, if I do workshops, whatever it is that I do, I want to leverage my customers trust in me to rub off on new potential customers. And so to start that growth engine, the very first thing we tried was cold email. And we would use builtwith.com and say, hey, give us a list, give us a CSV of people who use this tool. And what we would then do is we would integrate with that tool. So let's say it's an email marketing tool. We would integrate with it, get a list of people using it and send some cold emails and say, hey, we integrate with this tool that you use to run your business. If you combine the two, this is the, you know, the outcome you can get on your landing page. Um, right, but very quickly. Of, I've never heard of Build With. Can, can you just explain ah, what sure. that is? Built With is a very clever tool built by, I'm not sure if he's an Aussie or, or a Kiwi, but it's a, it's a one-man shop. It is an incredible SaaS tool. I think he said publicly it's doing like $8 million a year in an interview. And Built With 
essentially scans the entire internet. So just like Google, but they don't look at the content on the page, you know, your paragraph tags and what you're talking about. They just look at the page structure. So they look if you have a Google Analytics snippet in your HTML source code. They look if you have an image carousel widget. They look if you have the Instagram, you know, image rotation widget. And then they catalog that in their database. So you can say, show me a list of websites who use Google Analytics. And then you can also sort and filters because they'll cross-reference that data with, um, what is it, Alexis, Alexa, the web ranking sort of database. And they use SEO tools that they have partnerships with. So you can say, I only want to see a list of websites that use Google Analytics that have at least a million page views a month that are based in the United States that are in the manufacturing industry. And you just click through those filters and you can download a big CSV. And what they do when they're scanning those websites is they will also look for slash contact slash about page. And they'll kind of scrape those email addresses uh, from, from those pages. And I'm sure they have some other more black box mechanisms as well. But with Built With, you can basically find complementary tools, technologies to yours, and then sort of pair them and use that as your rationale for reaching out. So we did that for a while, but you have to be very careful scaling cold email, not getting marked as spam, and also just on a moral ethical level. You don't want to be spammy. You want to be helpful. Um, but when you're very early and you have zero customers, and then you have 10, and then you have 20, a few cold emails a day, you will literally see and feel the difference, right? You know, when you start to get bigger, customers are coming from so many sources and you just abstract it to like, we get 20 signups a day, we get 100 leads a day. But when you're smaller and you get three leads a day, you're at that place where you know this lead came from this email. This lead came because I shook that guy's hand at the networking event last night. So I think cold email is a pretty cool way to get really rapid feedback. You can offer people very long or free trials. You can kind of give them a sweeter deal than whatever your website might say. And that was how we got started. But ultimately, the strategy that I would say is our number one tactic for the last six years after that earliest stage was simply building integrations and then reaching out to that partner we integrated with and saying, hey, here's our docs. We've, we've already integrated with you. Here's the help article. Do you want to fix your logo? We sort of tried to match your branding. Um, oh, and by the way, if you think it's helpful to your other users, maybe you could give us a shout out in your newsletter. And so that's sort of what we then started calling our partnership strategy, um, where customer writes in and says, I need you to integrate with my email marketing tool so you can show signups on my landing page. We would very quickly build that. We would get that customer set up. Then we'd reach out to that potential partner and say, hey, our mutual customer, John Smith, is using our integration. Maybe we can do some co-marketing. And it didn't always work. But that's why we did so many integrations. So I think we have over 100 now. They're all native, one click in our app that uh, even if 10, 20, 30 of those got back to us, we've used that strategy to be featured on the homepage of marketplaces and app stores for some very, very big websites. We've got MailChimp, Square, all these websites have said like, hey, you guys just did, you did your homework, right? We didn't reach out to their team. We didn't bother them. We didn't ask for dev support. We used their existing public docs. We made it work. And in some of these cases, people would say, wow, like no one's ever used our API or you're the first API use case. Um, and then when we can pitch them a, a mutual case study 
it's sort of, um, I think, the uh, epitomized, you know, add value, add value, add value, and then ask for their business, as I think I heard Gary Vee say once. This is a, a, a brilliant strategy, and I want to make sure my listeners all understand this, because I had the benefit of doing my research before this interview, and I went to FOMO, and I kind of visualized it. So if you're listening to this and you're, you're having trouble visualizing it, I want you to imagine a website, Jane's Jam, and you know she's got an opt-in for her newsletter, which she deploys through MailChimp. And what Ryan's saying is she would call up FOMO and say, hey, I use MailChimp. Can you make sure that when somebody opts into my email newsletter, a little widget pops up that says John Smith just opted into the James Jam email newsletter. And they built that integration and they called MailChimp and said, hey, we got this cool integration. Like, if you think it would be valuable to some of your other MailChimp customers, why don't you? And of course, MailChimp has whatever it is, 10 million users or <laughs> whatever, 50 mm-hmm. million users. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take many of those to drive a huge sign up. I think this is a brilliant strategy and I think it's, it's amazing. Um, amazing. So you started with cold email and then you really use these integration sort of partnerships as the way you built the business. How big right. did you, did you get FOMO before you decided to sell it? Around 5,000 paying customers, 5,000 paying do they subscribers. Pay? Ballpark. Anywhere from 19 to 500 bucks a month each. What would that's a big that's a big gap. What would drive someone <laughs> to pay nineteen versus five hundred? Sure, the product is basically the same whether you are on the entry tier or the more enterprisey tier. But we tried we tried to make billing as fair as possible by using usage based tiers. So if you're someone that's getting ten million page views a month, we justify that. Hey, FOMO is adding more value or helping you with make helping you with more conversions than Jane's Jam, who gets, you know, one sale a day. Um, so that's sort of how we scaled our pricing. And so there's some very, very, very big e-commerce stores using using FOMO. And what would happen is they might sign up in a low month, but then Black Friday rolls around and they upgrade their plan and they change their parameters and settings. And then they might stick with that. Um, but we tried to, we really tried, and this is antithetical to a lot of startup advice and pricing advice. Everybody says charge more. Uh, you know, double your rates, yada, yada. And that's fine. I think there's a place for that. But uh, we found a lot of benefit from just being on sites. So if we got, you know, a keto customer, uh, they sell keto snacks, we would see in a seven day span, like 10 keto companies sign up. Why? Because everybody follows their competitors. People don't always talk about it. They don't always admit that, but it would be very blatantly obvious. You know, we'd get some like soup, Keto is maybe not niche anymore, but we'd get something super niche who would sign up and then three of their competitors would sign up that same week. And so I had to look at the math and it's like, well, could we have captured 20 more dollars from that first user? Maybe. But how many of their competitors who are always watching them would have also converted? And I think maybe that longer game, you know, having more affordable pricing allowed us to get a little more market share. Um, and then of course with churn, that also increases your share of wallet when they don't cancel because it's, you know, three months later and the aha wowness has worn off a bit. So we, we try to keep the pricing affordable. What was your gross churn rate? Oh, I, so I haven't worked on FOMO in two years. So this kind of interesting aspect of this deal, I stopped, I stepped down as CEO September, 2020. We got a new CEO at that time, and that new CEO led us all the way through the acquisition a few months ago. So I wouldn't have the latest numbers. When I was 
doing it, it was not great. Maybe seven and a half, eight percent. Sometimes we got it down to four and a half. Sometimes it was six and a half. Part of the problem with something like FOMO is that we were on top of other platforms. So we're on top of Shopify. We're on top of big commerce, which means we are inheriting that platform's churn. But that also makes it a little difficult to calculate our true net churn. So if we have a thousand stores and 8% cancel, but half of them we're going to cancel anyway because they canceled their whole store, like they shut down the business. So we have to then look at other metrics or industry standards and say, okay, if Shopify churned 4%, then let's, let's deduct four from our 50% of customers on Shopify. But yeah, that, I would say that was one of the things definitely that uh, held back our growth rate a little bit would be churn because to, again, all the way through the end, we're still getting some non-ideal customers signing up because they're so excited about the idea you know, the concept of people, many people start the businesses out of frustration about how other people run their business. And one of those frustrations can be shady marketing tactics and so on. So they start their business and they say, well, one, one person's pitching me to do all of these ads and aggressive spend with, with, you know, scare tactics. And then they come across something like FOMO where we just have doodles and, you know, use your customers and your customers, your best marketer. And that message is so, I mean, not to pat ourselves on the back, but it's just more pure and wholesome. And so what we have are kind of a lot of not tire kickers, but people who maybe aren't the ideal customer for FOMO trying us out because they want to support the mission of something like FOMO. But then they churn after a few months because, frankly, they just don't have a real business yet, right? They don't have a predictable sales engine. Yeah. And the SMB market is notorious for having higher churn rates than, say, enterprise or mid-market because there's just a lot of uncontrollable churn, to your point, companies go in and out right. of business. So just to be clear, the 8% was per month, I'm assuming? Yes. Well, parked, it, it, kind of, it would range from four to whatever. Uh, that's helpful for sure. I want to come back to um, your decision to sell, but I'd be remiss not to ask you about this new CEO. What triggered you to, to want to bring someone else in? And what, give me the backstory there. Sure. Well, I've always been a fan of systems. Uh, I think high output management was sort of my gateway drug into systems thinking by Andy Grove. And I just loved how he described in, in minute detail, you know, the concept of the black box and inspecting the black box and read some Jack Welch managed by walking the floor and started getting into these ideas. And that's also when I came across your book. And I started thinking that, you know, maybe we don't have a real business or a good business if I have to run around with my hair on fire all day to operate it. And that is how it was. I was I was okay to do it. I guess I took a little bit of pride in that hustle culture, but I was waking up early, going to bed really, really late. I think my personal cell phone number was on the homepage. So sometimes <laughs> people would call, you know, or like a European would call at 2 p.m. their time, but 3 a.m. my time. And I would just answer, hello, this is FOMO, you know, and <laughs> I, it lasted a while, but it also just started to wear on me, right? And it's like, and then, you know, you're watching friends and you're reading books and you're trying to always get smarter and learn how to do business. And uh, it seemed that an obvious next step in our maturity was I need to be able to, at the very least, take a vacation and this thing not blow up because I hadn't taken a vacation either. Right? It had been years where I had booked flights. I had gone away from my apartment, but I was like in random countries at cafes on computers, not actually vacationing, Right. And so the first step was like, let's get that, that, got that maybe chip on my shoulder. It's like, I need to be able to find a way to walk away for a week. 
But over time, up until I uh, stepped away as CEO, we started building internal documentation that we called the FOMO Bible. And so think of like your support desk where it's like help.fomo.com where we have, you know, a hundred articles for customers. We built that same thing, but just for team members. And this was super granular. Like let's say someone signs up annual and they pay a discount because they paid in advance, but they want to cancel at month three and a half. How do we process a pro rata refund? What exactly do we say to explain to them the math of that pro rata refund and how we justify it? So we started putting email copy, auto replies, you know, click this, then this, then this, like workflows into this FOMO Bible. And it's like a wiki. So you can see Git versioning and everything. And this Bible grew to easily 200 pieces of content very quickly. And it was like, wait a second, like we've basically just outsourced, we've just put my brain onto paper, those little secret linchpin things that only I knew, you know, only I had this password, only I knew how this system worked. We started just putting that all into the FOMO Bible. Suddenly the support team was able, was more empowered and they were able to do some of the things that, you know, hey, you got to ping Ryan to do. So at that time it was like, well, maybe I shouldn't just go on vacation. Maybe I should quit. (laughs) Um, And so that's what I did. So we got the new CEO and then the other part prompting to your, to your question, why or when, um, I've been a musician my whole life and I had this childhood dream, as many of us do, to be a, a pro musician or take it more seriously as a career. So um, I kind of put that from the back burner onto the, you know, the front burner, I guess, and decided I'm going to move to Korea, start to learn a new language, do music and entertainment and kind of just challenge myself. Because I didn't think it was enough of a challenge to just do music, which it definitely that's, is. So I'm not. That's it definitely blew my is. Mind to like, so you're running this company. People have your cell phone. They're calling in the middle of the night. You put the the FOMO Bible together, and you're like, "All right, I'm going to go to Korea, learn, yeah. learn a new language, and become a professional musician." Like that's a big. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Was this a girl? It makes, were you were you going to Korea for a, a girl? No, I wasn't. I really wasn't. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, right. it made sense. I admit, or I agree, it sounds really zany now. At the time, it was like, I, I so basically leading up to this uh, stepping away, I've been traveling all over the place just to try it out, you know, go to Italy for a few weeks, go here, do a little touristy stuff, work a bit. And one of those places that I traveled to for a couple of weeks was Korea. And I really liked it. And I had grown up with some Korean friends from playing violin and orchestra and being in Atlanta, there's a lot of, a lot of Koreans there. So that was sort of like, I guess, the context. Like I had a little bit of familiarity with the culture, with the food, uh, and I was curious about it. And so, yeah, at the time, it was like, I want to do a new challenge. I don't want to be on my computer all day for that challenge. So I thought language learning could be good. Writing music could be good. And I thought, I need this challenge to be really big. The one thing I learned at that time was like, I was was started getting, not burned out with FOMO, but just, I don't want to say the word depressed, but just sort of like very complacent. And I actually went to a little therapy and they, my summary of that, my conclusion of those sessions was my goals weren't big enough. All of my goals in my life took one or two years to accomplish. And for the most part, I accomplished them. And the feeling of satisfaction wasn't as great as I thought it would be. It was like literally two hours, you know, this, that's cool. Like we just sold the company and I would be happy for 45 minutes, you know? So I thought I need bigger goals. They need to take a long time to accomplish or they should never be accomplishable. So then suddenly the idea of, well, I'm kind of interested in Korea. I'm, I want to be a musician. 
traveling school. I can start over my network from scratch because my network in New York was was so good. It was like I was already on third base when I wanted to get stuff done. So that's where all of that at the time made perfect sense. Like, let's go to Korea and pursue a new career. Since that time, you've sold a company uh, for a lot of money. And I'm wondering if how you now think about goals and whether you are still um, in the in the space of of needing bigger and bigger goals to feel satisfied and accomplished and 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 happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've started to think about goals. Maybe this is the wrong way about it, but I learned very early on with FOMO that when you do a company. This guy, he was my CEO coach. His name is Jeff Minch and he's awesome. He's on Twitter. He has a really killer blog, like the musings of the big red car. And he fought in Korea and then he ran a bunch of companies and he's just a super all around awesome guy and really, really wicked smart. And I had him as my CEO coach for a little while and he would walk me through you know, what he thought were the fundamental tenets of a business. You need mission, vision, values, value statements, objectives, right? And he had all of these sort of heuristics, right? You know, you can do the work the best, but if you hire people to scale, be happy with them giving you 70% of the quality you could do. So he had all these heuristics that like sort of soothed me, you know, because at that micromanage early stage, you're like, I can do this better. I could just, and you don't want to hire and, you know, give up your baby. And so he helped me through, think through a lot of that. And so a couple of years ago, fast forward, Um, I started to remind myself of like, how does Jeff think we should run companies and could that be useful to individuals? Not in the sense of, you know, having a team scrum weekly stand-up meeting with myself, nothing like that, nothing too robotic, but could humans benefit from a vision, from a mission, from objectives? And what is the difference between those? And according to Jeff and some other literature I've read, your vision is sort of this thing that you never reach. It's like the end of the rainbow. You, You physically can't get there. But your mission is something that is achievable, but specifically your mission should be achievable in like three to five years because you have to have visible progress and you have to keep teams motivated to keep working with you and not have employee churn. And then as you get close to your mission, you can sort of like renew a new mission or a new set of goals and objectives. So I started thinking about that for myself. And it's like my mission or my vision when I was just getting started in tech after school was to found a company you know, be a founder instead of an employee. Well, I did that and I like failed. And then like, I was like, I'll be a founder of another company. I did that and I failed again. I think FOMO is my third or fourth company that actually worked. My first one that worked, my third or fourth attempt. And so then we sold a company a few years ago. Um, and so that was my next like mission was like, well, let me have a successful company and exit because that is the creme de la creme, right? Of all founders is to exit your business and watch it sort of uh, flourish without you. So we did that. And we sold it to a PE company. And that was what I was referring to earlier. It was a 45 minute of ecstasy joy. Um, I literally went to lunch alone and got like a a $9 meal at a barbecue place. And that was my celebration. I didn't even allow myself to get like a present or a gift or anything. It just, it was so, it was like antithetical to how I thought it would be or anticlimactic rather. And uh, so then I thought, okay, I need bigger goal. I need a goal that's going to take more time or that, in this company terms, isn't quite achievable. And so then language learning came around. It's like, well, you can never be an expert in a language, definitely not a second language. 
uh, I'll choose a difficult language. So that sort of got part of it going. But I also needed to figure out a professional endeavor. How could I make money? How could I use the skills I have? Because I don't have any skills with language. So I started thinking about the music thing. It was like, well, I could sell out a show, but you could sell out a show of 100 people or should you sell out a show of 50,000 people? Should you sell out a world tour or just be the local, you know, local act? So music started to look like this really ambitious field where I wouldn't get uh, caught up in the same challenges I was with work where, you know, there's these binary sell a business, start a business. Yeah, cool story, bro. You know, I did it in a year or two with music, with language, with these other industries, maybe, maybe that was the key, the other industries, I was able to plot out goals and mission and vision that either weren't ever achievable, or at least would take several years to achieve. And that really kept me going um, those last two and a half years that I was in Korea. Got it. Got it. And now do you do you have goals that are unachievable that you're or, or that a vision that is unachievable and goals that are five years out. Are, are you still on the, I guess what I'm getting at, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll just come clean and tell you um, some of the stuff that I've been working on personally. And that is that I've always been a very goal oriented kind of person. And um, I read a book and I wish it was coming to me at this moment. It's not uh, where it encouraged, you know, the, the idea that, that that hamster wheel can become never ending and, and, mm-hmm. and it takes, it makes it harder and harder and harder to get the adrenaline rush you get from achieving a goal because you got to set higher and higher goals. And so I've personally been doing some work over the last few months around sort of dialing back on goal setting and finding other ways to feel kind of fulfilled. And I just wonder mm-hmm. with some, some reflection of your, like some, You've obviously achieved a lot, and I wonder if you've gone through similar uh, journey around goal setting. That that's that was where I was kind of sure. going with the question. Yeah, so I think about this a lot now, and I think I've at least for me figured out uh, a sustainable path forward. Because I think what you're getting at, and what a lot of us realize, this hedonic treadmill—that's what my buddy Dave calls it. Yeah. is, uh, okay, let's just put it in purely financial terms because that's uh, an easily countable thing. Your goal is to make a million bucks and then you do it. So then you think you get this like dissatisfaction, like actually a million is nothing because I want a private jet or something. So then your new goal is 10 million and then it's a hundred. That type of goal setting, I think is very unhealthy uh, and unsustainable because what you're actually doing is actually you have the same goal. You're just stacking it or like increasing the difficulty of the goal from one to 10 to 100, but the goal was still the same. It was like money and the inputs are probably also pretty much the same. You know, hire teams, manage people, close sales, right? Uh, So you could even argue the same with politics, you know, run for local council, then state senator and whatever. It's kind of like same inputs, but you think your output should be 10X bigger each time. So that's like goal stacking. And I think that's where you're going to get disappointed. And you literally are climbing up this ladder and the rungs are being burned off as you go up. And I think a lot of people run into that problem. And then we call that the hedonic treadmill and you're never satisfied. What I'm trying to do is a little different where let's say I finish a goal cycle, right? So like now we've sold FOMO. It does feel like I'm in a chapter three of my life and I can sort of articulate chapters one and two. Chapter three is I'm living in a rural area. I'm doing non-tech things. Um, and so, the way I'm thinking about these bigger and bigger goals isn't in terms of stacking them on top, but sort of just adjacent and into new categories that stretch my 
zone of competence or, or comfort zone. And so right now, a huge goal for me could be making this ranch uh, off grid, right? Get, which means getting a solar, getting a well. Those are really basic um, tasks to some people who have this special knowledge who have grown up on farms or done construction work. For me, that's a huge goal. For me, making the ranch into like a compound is actually sort of a bigger goal in terms of how long it will take, how many skills I need to learn than building a tech company. Um, but it's all relative to me. Whereas if I said, hey, my new goal will be sold FOMO for the X, I need another make another company and sell for Y, that is not something I'm interested in at all. So yeah, I think it's possible to have both of these ideas in our head at the same time, that you treat each goal as a stepping stone to the next. You know, my, my new goal, my current goal is bigger than my last goal. It's going to be more difficult than the last goal. It's going to take more time than the last goal. Anyone watching this sees I'm covered in um, poison ivy now because I'm horrible at achieving this goal. I've been working in the woods without gloves. Um, and we should be but clear, I think you mentioned before we hit record that you'd move to this ranch, this 50 acre ranch, and you're kind of like, like right. a pioneer. <laughs> and so I don't right. think that was clear. That may not be clear uh, to sure. the listeners. So, so Ryan is recording this from this new ranch that he's, you know, he's, uh, he's clearing the, the, uh, right. the, the, the ground for, which is pretty cool. Exactly. But all, all that to say, right. I think I've set a bigger goal. Uh, it's not bigger to some people. Some people think what sure. I'm doing now is, is easy mode. And what I just did a, a month ago was harder, but, uh, that's maybe one way that we can stay goal oriented without feeling like we're one-upping ourselves on a hedonic treadmill. I love this line of thinking. It's great. I, th- I appreciate you going there with me. Let's go back to FOMO and talk about the sale itself. So you're at 5,000 customers. Cagely, you didn't tell me how much revenue you had. So I'm assuming you don't want to share that or, or are you able to share kind of revenue ballpark? Annual revenue over a million. I'll say that. Got it. Okay, so that helps. And, and how many employees? At the time we sold, we've gone up and down over the years. I've treated the team as its own experiment. So, you know, you add this feature and people like it and you turn it off or you add a few team members. Does it help? And sometimes you have to turn that off as well. Um, so we've had as many as 12, 13 full-time. And I think when we sold, we were like half that and had a couple part-time. Cool. Yeah, yeah, so great. maybe so- five, six full-time. Okay, but that gives people a sense of, of the size, um, which is super helpful. Um, you, you're in Korea. You've got someone running the company. What triggered you to want to sell it? What was the, the kind of straw that broke the camel's back? I suppose part of it was personal. You know, I, I started to get this idea of let me change my lifestyle. Let me move out of cities. Let me uh, try the ranch thing. Of course, for that, I'd want to do it a nice, a nice down payment. So a little bit personal, but also it just seemed that we were in a cycle. We, we weren't in a clear um, place of our cycle. So there's this company building, you know, the first few months you build, you build an MVP. Then you spend a few months getting early traction and customers. Then maybe you raise money and, you know, then you're in a growth stage and then you have a decline and you fix things and you go back to growth stage. And I couldn't really articulate where is FOMO in that company development life cycle. And because I couldn't figure it out, I thought maybe that means we should sell and find someone else who's going to treat it the way we did when we bought Notify. So who, if someone else would look at FOMO right now and be more excited about it than I would be, 
then maybe that means we're primed to sell, at least from a sort of cosmological, spiritual perspective. Isn't that a wild... Yeah, I've never heard that as a trigger, but I but I think it makes sense, right? And right. Again, we're always talking about on this show, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, they view selling as the sort of, you know, finish line in a marathon, yet what you've got to do if you're going to sell your company at a premium is to try to characterize your finish line as someone else's starting line. And you've got to That's right. get them really excited to run the next lay, you know, leg of the race. And that's, that's right. really hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to get their head around. It's, it's difficult, but I think one way to think about it, because this is sort of what we did. So when we were gearing up to sell, let's say the Let's say if we just start the clock at four months before we actually sold or three months before we got our LOI that we then signed and sold, um, we had this idea of like, maybe we won't sell because we can't find the right buyer or we can't get a right, the right multiple. Essentially, we knew we could find a buyer. I mean, it's easier than ever nowadays to sell, especially apps, you know, web apps and things doing e-commerce. We knew we could find a buyer. It was all going to be about the valuation. So we said, well, let's hedge against this project by hiring marketers, working on new campaigns, maybe tweaking the product in ways that we've been putting on the back burner so that if and when we don't sell, we actually have, like you said, that new starting line and we have new initiatives ready to rock for the 2022 year. So we were started going into hardcore sales mode end of 2021. And then that did end up helping conversations with buyers and we're negotiating. And I'm saying, look, we don't have to work together because we're thinking about acquiring this competitor as like an add-on bolt-on. We're um, going to reach out to these new partners. We're going to build these seven new integrations. And we think the two of these seven will, will give us, you know, features on their app stores. And so those are sort of like the marketing fodder. Here's like the put you on second base to the buyer, but it also served as a hedge in case that buyer never came. So I totally agree with you. And I think there's a way around it where you can, uh, sort of make it where it's like the worst case scenario is still awesome. So, you know, if you're preparing to sell your business, start acting as if you're, you know, you need to grow it 2x. I don't know. Do a six-month campaign and simultaneously try to sell it. And no matter what, at the end of that six months, either you've sold your company or your company's in a better place. That's an awesome, awesome suggestion. I love it. So what did you do next? So you decided to sell. Did you market it yourself? Did you Did you hire an advisor? Like what was your next step? I was really torn about how to go about selling it. Of course, we are familiar with the process of buying and selling. We have done 10, 15 deals ourselves. Um, I have a little fund called Fork Equity, but you know, there's, there's no exact right way to do a deal on the buyer sell side. There are marketplaces and brokers. There are private deal flow. There are advisors who will do searches for you. Um, my main priority was that I wanted FOMO to sort of keep running as if we weren't selling. I didn't want the team to get excited or riled up or concerned, you know, is, is what's going to happen to my job. I didn't really want all of my Twitter network to know all of our metrics in case it didn't work out. I just didn't really want to like fully open our kimono to the world. So that was sort of the first decision point is like, do you go public or private with your sale process? We decided the, the latter. So I hired a buddy of mine, Neil who started poking around his contacts. And he was sort of acting as our in-house broker advisor. He started reaching out through a little bit of cold email, getting some intros, looking for funds that might uh, like an app like ours. And uh, several of them were interested. So then we prepared you know, a data room 
really just a Google Drive folder. <laughs> we prepared a data room with uh, P&L and things like that. And we would gauge their interest, you know, how much data should we give them? If someone said, sure, send it all over, it's like, eh, maybe they're not that serious. But if someone had eight pointed questions about churn or something like that or growth initiatives, we would consider them a more highly vetted buyer, more interested. And so we got, you know, limited information about our metrics out to a handful of buyers and we got a couple LOIs and we, you know, ended up doing a little more negotiating on the terms and did the sale. But I guess the way I'm talking about it now glosses over the pain, right? There's a lot of pain. You are trying to run a company and then you also have to prepare a zillion documents and hop on calls and get a lot of what will feel like negative criticism of people that just their face on the screen looks like they don't believe anything you're saying. But that's because these are just big enough transactions that people buying your company might be spending someone else's money, right? So don't take it personally. They're also trying to cover their own butt and you have to be really uh, respectful and mindful of that. But essentially you're gonna have two jobs for that period. Uh, One is the sale and one is your normal day job running the company. Luckily, I'm just sort of, Speaking vicariously through the CEO, I didn't do that much during our sale. I did a couple calls as the you know OG founder wanted to pump some energy into the environment, into the atmosphere, uh, because everyone's so stuck in the, the deal flow um, minutia and the administrative work. I wanted to just be like, I'm Ryan. Here's why FOMO's awesome, and FOMO's the embodiment of some of my own thoughts about marketing. And here's how you can take it to the next level. Um, so that was the extent of my honestly, my participation, simply because I stepped away as as CEO. But uh, yeah, we were able to do it all privately. We got the LOI. They did another maybe 45 days of due diligence where we did, you know, code review. We looked at, uh, excuse me, exports from banks, exports, you know, all the financials, customer support. You know, we did some audits with third-party companies who wanted to check our security and look for vulnerabilities in the app itself and things like that which I know don't apply to every type of business. Um, and then we, I think we had to push closing a couple weeks later than initially planned, but it all worked. And we did like a close sign, same day, no escrow. Uh, it was done. Then we spent about another month, maybe month and a half transitioning all the, the immediate stuff. You know, here's the password, make sure everything runs as usual. And about a month later after the sale, we announced it with a sort of co-written blog post on the FOMO blog. And so since then, I've been able to talk about it. But probably for four months before the announcement, I knew we're selling. I knew who we're selling to. I knew the numbers. And, you know, then it was just like each day kind of twiddling my thumbs and sweating it out until we could talk about it and the deal was done. Awesome. I want to go rewind a little bit. So you make the decision to sell. You have not done any of the marketing, hired Neil yet. Do you have any sense of what it might be worth? I mean, are you looking at benchmarks and kind of coming up with some some semblance of what multiple uh, you might be able to get for? Not really. I mean, of course, I've looked at I've looked at all the charts and I've looked at many reports that people put out, whether it's VCs or, you know, online newsletters, magazines, they'll compile data on multiples. I think one of the challenges with using that data is that there's two types of buyers, right? There's strategic buyer and financial buyer. Their strategic buyer might be like Facebook buying Instagram, right? Insta- there was no revenue, revenue. There's no revenue multiplier. I mean, there might've been some revenue from ads or sponsorships, but that was totally irrelevant, right? They're just like, this is the next big social network. 
here's a number that's so big you can't say no. It's an offer you can't refuse. Here's one point whatever, $1 billion. And that's your strategic buyer. Financial buyer is saying, yeah, we're going to value you based off your revenue or profit. And then obviously we're going to think about how much bigger we can make it in the future um, and that kind of thing. So with FOMO, I think from day one of this sale process that started last year, we thought we'll probably be acquired by a financial buyer. Not because I didn't think that we could be acquired by a strategic, but because during the process of running FOMO, we were approached by several very large public companies that all of us know about, household names, their corp development teams, right? And you get the emails and they say they're interested in a partnership or potential acquisition. And you go through all the hoops with them and you give them all your data and then just crickets, just nothing happens. So I thought, you know what, even if we could be acquired by that strategic type of company, that's just going to let us throw out a big number and not use a multiple of revenue. It's going to be a very long and painful process. It's going to be very political. And I'm not good at anything that's long, painful, or political. So uh, when we decided to sell, we thought, let's forget about the strategics. Let's just focus on financial buyers. And here's my point to your question is that those charts are combining the valuations of both types of buyers. So you'll look at a chart and it says, oh, everyone's getting acquired for 10x. It's like, well, yeah, that's because there was one company acquired for 300x and 299 companies acquired for 3.3x. And so that's why I don't love that data. It's not really parsed very easily to determine what's realistic for you. Um, so we just thought, you know, what's the number that we would feel proud, you know, that we wouldn't feel regret? How do we simulate what buyer's remorse would look like? Well, buyer's remorse for me would look like this multiple, right? And then we also had to calculate, which was very easy, what is our monthly distribution right now? Because we were doing cash dividends every month, like very, I would say, very sizable dividends. So we were able to back of napkin just say, okay, if the acquisition happened at this multiple and I would make all of that money regardless from just pure dividends in 20 months or 29 months, then this isn't really worth it for us, right? So we were able to find sort of a sweet spot multiple where it's worth it, that net present value to get all the capital now uh, versus waiting it out every month. But so how also, many months yeah. of- how many months of contributions did you calculate it would need to be in order to make it make sense? Probably seven years, maybe Got it. six, Got seven, it. eight years. Yeah. I was like, well, I'll be in a different stage in my life. You know, forget the company and what we do in the market, all that for a second. It's like seven years from now, I'll be a different person. Um, and how could I make that seven year future from now, Ryan? have had an even cooler, more interesting life. Um, and so what's the future net present value of that, <laughs> of just yeah, simply so, aging? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, so I just wanna make sure I understand the, the thinking and I think this will be super helpful for other listeners. So what you're saying is, is an entrepreneur can sit down and say, okay, well, you know, I, I could probably pull out 200 grand a year out of this company in the form of compensation. And, and, and if I can get, a year. And if I can get six or seven times that all up front, that might be worth taking because the time value of money in the way you're thinking about it. So that's, that's how you sort of thought about this. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. And then, and then you know, and then I guess the other thing that's just not calculable, it's maybe not fair that people use this, but this is how humans are. We're not totally rational. Rational is just the peace of mind. You know, it just, it feels good to have one less thing on your plate. 
um, to know that this is someone else's responsibility. Um, you know, founders will, you know, when VCs meet you and they say, what keeps you up at night? It's kind of a goofy, you know, very VC, New York City time, you know, Union Square coffee shop at 7 a.m. question. However, there's a truth to it. You know, there were literally times where I'm laying in bed trying to fathom what is the thing that I could wake up tomorrow and FOMA would shut down. And I could actually come up with answers, right? If you go looking for something, you'll find it. I could come up with answers. And so part of the sale too was like, I will sleep better. There, Something could go wrong and I don't want anything to go wrong. But it's sort of this game of entrepreneurship, sort of this game of hot potato, where you're throwing around the potato around the room, around your founders, your, your co-business partners. Each time you hold the potato, you get a little money. You know, you get a little payment, you get a little prestige status, whatever it is you're looking for. But if you hold it for too long, you get burned. And I think businesses are sort of like that potato. And that's why I go back to that concept of what stage are we at? We need to find someone who looks at FOMO and says, oh, this is the perfect opportunity for us to 10 exit. When we bought Notify, that was our like sweet spot. We can 10x Notify and we needed to find someone else to 10x FOMO. So if we look at where you're at in terms of, of annual recurring revenue, what multiple of ARR would you have to have gotten? I know we can't talk about the exact number and I totally appreciate that. But as you're thinking well before hiring Neil, well before entertaining any LOIs, as you're sitting there saying, like, what would the minimum number of AR have to be for you to not feel seller's regret or remorse? Sure. I'd say at least four, at least four, four or five times years of, yeah, of revenue, which is, which then, you know, depending on your profit margin, it could be six, seven, eight, 12 times your profit, right? Yeah. Um, and so with me, it was like minimum four is good. And I've talked to plenty of SaaS, you know, SaaS are going to get, SaaS apps are going to get a higher multiple than an e-commerce store or like a, a niche content website. But what was useful for me and saying, okay, I'm not going to have, I don't want to say the ego, but I'm not going to have a minimum expectation of minimum seven years and minimum 10 years is that I had to remind myself, we've been doing distributions for multiple years. You know, we've been, ca- we've been doing cash out on a monthly basis for years. I also had a salary with like a very good salary in addition to the the monthly distributions. And then my lifestyle was cool. It was like, I didn't have to go to an office. I didn't have a board. I didn't have VCs. So I thought, you know, if we get a minimum four or five years revenue, plus combining whatever I've made as just an employee, plus combining the cash out distributions, my net net here is still a very, um, very big win. Whereas if I was a VC backed company with, you know, 10% 10% margins because our, our investors are telling us to plow every dollar back into the business. And the net revenue we do procure isn't something I can just cash out to myself. It needs to be put back in the business. Well, now I, I want to get that minimum 7X or 10X. But even those two founders, that imaginary founder compared to me, our exit might still be at the end about, about the same. They're more diluted. They only get paid once. Their salary is sort of fixed and lower. We were able to run this business where if FOMO had shut down completely, somehow we just got banned, I don't know, on all the app stores overnight. If I calculated what we were able to earn as individuals, it was still a worthwhile venture, you know, after those four or five years compared to, let's say, working a corporate job. So yeah, yeah. that helped me a lot. Again, this is, I'm sort of speaking spiritually here with thinking evaluation. And I would say the other big thing for me is this is not my first or my last time to build or sell a company. And just really uh, internalizing that notion 
was really helpful. I think many people sell their company and they're like, I'm only going to do this once. So it has to be perfect. It has to be the perfect amount. It has to be the perfect, you know, partner. My thought is like, we, we'd already sold a couple companies before FOMO. Uh, we're set, we sold FOMO. I'm going to sell another company. Uh, just take the win, you know, take the W, take another W, take another W. So many people trying to find the perfect W, they just strike out over and over again. It's sad to see. And I sort of classify that separate conversation, sort of classify that in the greed department. And I've I've always tried to like consciously be anti-greedy. Um, I'm greedy in like the quantity, like let's do another one, but not on making each one some perfect thing. It's just like, I've always had the just ship it mentality, whether I'm recording a song or hitting publish on a blog post or even selling a company. It's like, this is good enough. Let's ship it. Let's do it. And then on to the next one. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great way to think. And and I you know, I go back to baseball as an analogy. I mean, like a really nice double is is awesome. And if you can hit doubles mm-hmm. all day long, you'll be in the, in the Hall of mm-hmm. Fame. Uh mm-hmm. I think a lot of guys get up swinging for the fence and strike out and it's and it's yeah. um and it's uh you know, I think having a doubles mentality is a really great way to play baseball and it sounds similar into in the way you're thinking of an entrepreneurship. Um I love this so uh, before we get into my final list of kind of uh, you know, fast round questions, w- were there multiple bidders at the table or were you working exclusively with the Ultimate Buyer Relay? We got a couple signed LOIs. Um, actually, the funny enough, the first one we received was a bigger number and maybe arguably better terms, uh, a significantly bigger number. Uh, but that was also how we realized in real time what our priorities were for the deal. And we just really didn't like those people (laughs) or we didn't like their management style. Uh, they were going to put time trackers on our developers computers, right. And have it like screen record them and, you know, log their hours. And it's like, these, these guys are so talented and they're remote and, you know, let them work the way they want to work. I just didn't want to disrupt that. So that deal after a couple of weeks. Uh, which is like, no thanks. And then a couple months later, we got the new LOI where the partner alignment was so much better. The team had experience in B2B marketing SaaS apps. Um, I think there was maybe more cash up front. So the terms might've been a little better, but the number was overall lower, but that was what was most important to us was um, was the deal structure and uh, how, preserving the team. What can you tell us about the deal structure vis-a-vis, you know, how much, what proportion was up front versus earnout versus, you know, hold back? Can you, can you share any of those details? I guess it was around 75% up front. We're going to get the other 25% based on two things in, uh, in exactly a year from the close date. So we closed in May, 2022. We're going to get the last 20, 25% in May, 2023 based on two things. One is growing a little bit. Uh, so they don't want to flatline or, or go down. So that that's fine. I, I justified that as like, if we were operating it and we went down, then I would have made less from distributions, right? So I'm not really, um, you know, missing out on revenue. And, uh, and then the second half is just that our CEO stays, uh, you know, on the team for that year, which is very easy to do. And she's, she's happy to do it. So, um, Sort of most of like that remaining 20, 25% is guaranteed, right? Barring act of God circumstance. And then the other 12% is like, hey, let's just, you know, do a good job, keep blocking and tackling. And I think they're going to nail that because we now have new, new 
team members. I think we have at least two or three new marketers on the team that we didn't have before the acquisition. And they also injected a budget for marketing that is not coming out of our of our EBITDA. So that growth number is, is sort of generous, right? We can sort of make the revenue go up to a point, not even covering for all the new team members. And that's still going to be recognized as growth. Um, did, you part of that force, did you have the foresight to negotiate that marketing injection before the share purchase agreement? Like, did you part, make that part of the deal that they would agree to invest X amount in, in marketing? Yes, we did. And we were, we took their direction on how much, you know, how much would we have a new budget for marketing and obviously how much uh, someone might need to pay a marketer versus how much I would pay a marketer is up to them as well. But that was part of what we didn't like, I think, about the first LOI was that we just got the vibe they were going to cut costs, you know, and like, okay, who can we fire sort of thing, which again, sometimes that's, that's a reasonable thing to do uh, when you buy a company and it's, it's your company, you could do whatever you want. But we're a very small team, five, six people. So to me, you know, if someone who's looking like, who can I fire on a five-person team, they're looking in the wrong place to optimize the business, to grow it, cut costs. Um, so with this, it's like, we had the foresight to say, we want a marketing budget, we want the team to stay, and we want that not to count towards growth. And then we took their lead when they said, okay, here's what we can do in that share, you know, that purchase agreement. Uh, this will be the, the budget and that kind of thing. And by the way, on the purchase agreement, we also, this was a huge win for us as well, which affected uh, valuation, affected our net returns as the owners. We negotiated a entity sale, right? Instead of an asset purchase agreement. And because we started FOMO in 2016, that qualifies us for QSBS at the five-year mark. So I'm paying no um, capital gains on the sale, which as you can imagine is hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So Suddenly that gives you, depending on your sale, that can impact the sale price, the net proceeds by, you know, you can have a chain, a fluctuation of one to $2 million on the sale price and still make the same amount of money if you do an entity sale instead of an asset purchase. Yeah. And, and I would encourage all of our listeners to, to talk to their, their advisors in particular, their accountant, um, to understand the financial implications of a share purchase deal versus an asset purchase deal. Um, they can be hugely material. It depends on your geography, your, your tax jurisdiction. Uh, Ryan was in the United States. I'm recording this in Canada. We have, we have a slightly different rule there. It's preferential for a share sale, but it's slightly different. So just regardless of where you are in the world, talk to your accountant and really understand, you know, most buyers are going to want to buy your assets. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you will find that the deal is is better for you financially if they buy your shares. In many cases, it will be better for you if they buy your shares. So I think you just want to really go into that acquisition um, with your eyes wide open about the difference between a share purchase deal and an asset purchase deal. Um, but that's super helpful, Ryan, for from your perspective to hear that as well. Uh, are you up for a little lightning round of last questions before I let you go? Let's do it. Cool. What's the slimiest trick an acquirer has tried to play on you to get your business for less than it's worth? Probably the same tactics investors use. What if Google does this? What if we build a competitor? Here's a competitor we found that does this for half the price of you, but doesn't have you know parity in the service or features. And they just basically express their ignorance about what it is that you do. So I think those are the types of acquirers that were never going to buy you anyway, right? Because if you want to buy a company, you're excited about it. 
you are not uh, super skeptical about it. And so they're not even an acquirer. They're a tire kicker and you should you know, sort of deal with them appropriately. Nice. What's the biggest mistake you made personally in the process of selling your company? I'd say the, the mistake I made was pre-sale, which was simply the growth. I talked a lot today about how we grew and that was successful, but I do wish we invested more in paid acquisition because that would have gotten us more exposure, more brand household name sort of um, uh, recognition. And then I think that would have lent itself better to the sale where if, if an acquirer already knows all about you before they know you're for sale, that's going to be better, right? Than if they have to research and say, what's your, what's your .com? So my mistake was probably made years before the actual sale. But uh, if you think you're going to sell your business one day, start thinking about those things uh, ahead of time. Great point. Selling can be a very emotional journey for a lot of entrepreneurs. For you, what was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the sale process? <laughs> oh, it was when, uh, I mean, and I'm not throwing our choir under the bus. They're obviously great and they're our partners now. But for me, the lowest point emotionally was that I was trying to coordinate my own projects like acquiring a house, you know, and sort of trying to time it all with the closing on the house and closing on the deal. And then we needed to delay the closing on the, on the business. And I thought I might lose the house. It all worked out. I'm in the house. I'm sitting in the house right now with you. But um, yeah, that was my lowest emotional point it was like, I wasn't mad at anybody except me. You know, why did I try to ride so close to the sun and have these closing dates 72 hours apart? I don't know. Uh, but that was my lowest emotional point, but it all worked out. We delayed both closing dates and it was probably a better move that we did that. What delayed the closing on the business? I think we just weren't done with due diligence. Uh, the person preparing all the materials was our CEO. I am just pretty helpless with a lot of the like technical diligence from the financial side. I can export Stripe, but I'm not going to be great at making like a balance sheet. Uh, so she had to do all of that and run the company day to day to keep those metrics up in the case that, right, we didn't sell and we wanted the company to be better off. So a lot of burden was on her. I was, like I said, sitting around twiddling my thumbs not trying to be a backseat driver, but ultimately I think uh, because I wasn't as involved, we had to delay the closing um, and then everything else was a domino after that. What was the highest point you reached emotionally? It was when we said we wanted to do a share purchase, right? Instead of an asset purchase. And when we sort of had our final, like here's our final offer counter and they said, okay, that was, that was just awesome. I guess you get that endorphin rush. It's sort of like when you go buy something at the store, it might feel just as good or better than when you have to go home and unpack it. It was like just clocking a win. Uh, it was an emotional win, right? It wasn't material yet, but that might've been a higher point moment than the day that we signed and got the money in the bank. By then it was like, okay, let's just check, refresh the screen. But the real emotional feeling was when they agreed and it was like, oh, this is what that looks like when you sell your, your company. Awesome. What what resources did you turn to to sort of educate yourself about the selling process? And I ask this question, mindful that you um, have sold other businesses, so this you, this was not your first rodeo. But I'm curious was there was there a book, uh, a webinar? You've already mentioned high output management, but that was really more in the context of of systematizing. But I'm I'm curious. You know, this, the process of selling itself is this sort of opaque world, not a lot of information out there. Was there anything that you turned to that you could point our listeners to in the way of resources? 
Well, one way that I think is great to learn about the process of selling, but not a fun answer, is actually to try buying a small company, even something mm. really, even something that's not a company. Try to buy an MVP that someone built that makes ten bucks a month. Go on somewhere like microacquire.com. We have our own deal flow tool. There's a lot of places you can look for businesses and go through that process of asking questions, doing your own diligence. That's going to equip you with okay, here's why a seller might want to be asking me all these annoying questions. Here's how long it might take. Here's how the agreement might look. So I do think it's one of these things where you learn best by doing. In terms of reading and literature, one thing that really helped me think about the overall idea of selling and should we sell and why and when and for how much and what valuation was actually Mike McCallowitz's Profit First. I thought that book was fantastic at reminding us that profit should be a daily event, not a destination. And once you do that, you actually can realize that maybe this idea of selling or exiting. Doesn't have to be a single big check from a firm. It could be something I do every month when I hit withdraw from my bank account.、Um, and now you have two options for your exit. It can be a lifelong, forever hold exit every month, or a one-time thing, or in our case, luckily、uh, both. Awesome. Profit first. We'll put that in the show notes at builttosell.com, and, and Mike's got some other books that we'll link to、mm-hmm. as well. My last question is. Please tell me you bought yourself a trophy other than a nine dollar sandwich at a barbecue hut. Please tell me there was some trophy that you you purchased.、It, uh, was there something that you bought to kind of remind you of the success of FOMO? You're looking around. <laughs> I'm looking around the room. This stuff was like in my storage in Texas from four years ago.、Uh, I did buy a new truck, but I, I sort of needed that, you know, sort of necessity. What'd you buy? I bought a new Tacoma.、Uh, Like XP black four door Tacoma truck,、um, awesome. it's it's been really handy getting around town, picking up you know stuff at Walmart. <laughs> to be honest, Home Depot. But、uh, I guess toy wise, yesterday got our first toy, which is contracted a team to build one of those very stately kind of electronic gates at the front of the road. So I wanted it to feel like the Biltmore, feel like you know Fresh Prince, you know, with the clicker and the number pad and. It's going to be very annoying for the Amazon delivery, I'm sure. But currently, there's a cat, a cattle gate there, and it just isn't、uh, is isn't on par with how I envisioned, you know, a ranch to look like. So I guess that's our first、nice. toy. Nice. So you're gonna have a, a gate, and you can you can buzz people in.、It、sounds awesome.、Um, that's right. Ryan, I know people are going to want to reach out to you. Probably probably learn a little bit more more about Fork. Uh, so tell people where they can do that. What's what's the best way to to sort of reach out to you? I'm on two places, mostly on Twitter, Ryan C K U L P, as well as my personal website slash blog, which is the same, Ryan C Culp dot com. Great, and we'll put both of those、uh, links and all the other things we talked about today at builttosell dot com. Ryan, thanks for doing this. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between John and Ryan. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode and want to support the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you can leave a rating and review. It's super helpful to grow the show and get it in front of more people just like you. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms, you can visit the episode page, which again can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. A lot of our great guests, just like Ryan, have been nominated. And if you know of someone, you can head over to builttosell.com/nominate, where there you can nominate either yourself or someone else. 
to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 